Hi, I'm Eliza Strickland for IEEE Spectrum's Fixing the Future podcast. Before we start, I want to tell you that you can get the latest coverage from some of Spectrum's most important beats, including AI, climate change, and robotics, by signing up for one of our free newsletters. Just go to spectrum.ieee.org newsletters to subscribe. You've probably heard of Neuralink, the buzzy neurotech company founded by Elon Musk that wants to put brain implants in humans this year. But you might not have heard of another company, Synchron, that's way ahead of Neuralink. The company has already put 10 of its innovative brain implants into humans during its clinical trials, and it's pushing ahead to regulatory approval of a commercial system. Synchron's implant is a type of brain-computer interface, or BCI, that can allow severely paralyzed people to control communication software and other computer programs with their thoughts alone. Tom Oxley is a practicing neurologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City and the founder and CEO of Synchron. He joined us on Fixing the Future to tell us about the company's technology and its progress. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on Fixing the Future today. So the enabling technology behind Synchron is something called the Stentrode. Can you explain to listeners how that works? Yeah, so the Stentrode, the concept of the Stentrode was that we can take a endovascular platform that's been used in medicine for decades and build an electronics um, Uh, layer onto it and I I guess it addresses one of the challenges with implantable neurotechnology in the brain which is that um, well firstly it's hard to get into the brain and secondly uh, it's hard to remain in the brain without having the brain launch a pretty sophisticated immune response at you and you know the blood-brain barrier is a thing and if you can stay inside on the you know one side of that blood-brain barrier, um, then you do have a very predictable and contained immune response. Um, you know that's that's how tattoos work in the skin, and the the skin is the epithelial, and the and the blood vessels have an endothelial layer, and they kind of behave the same way. So, if you can convince the the endothelial layer of the blood vessel to receive a package and not worry about it and just leave it be, then you've got a long-term solution for an electronics package that can use the natural highways to, you know, many, most regions within the brain. Right. So it's called a stentrode because it resembles a stent, right? It's sort of like a mesh sleeve with electrodes embedded in it. Um, and it's inserted through the jugular. jugular, is that correct? We actually called it a stentrode because in the early days we we were taking stents and Nick Opie and, and Gil Rind uh, were basically, and, and um, uh, Steve as well, were taking these stents that we basically uh, took out of the rubbish bin and cleaned them and then by hand were weaving electrodes onto the stent. So we just needed a name to call the devices that we were testing um, back in the early days. So Stentrode was a really organic um, term that we just started using within the group. And I think then 2016, Wired ran a piece calling it like one of the new words. So we're like, okay, this word seems to be sticking. Yeah, it goes in the jugular vein. So in this, in this, well, in our first, in, in what we're seeking to commercialize as the first product offering for our implantable BCI platform, we're targeting 
a particular large blood vessel called the superior sagittal sinus and um, the entrance yes the entrance into the body is through the jugular vein to get there yeah i'm curious about the early days can you tell me a little bit about how your team came up with this idea in the first place the very early conceptualization of this um, was I was going through medical school with my co-founder Rahul Sharma who's a cardiologist and he was very fixated on interventional cardiology which is a very sexy field in medicine and I was more obsessed with the brain and it looked and this is back around 2010 that um, intervention was going to become a, a thing in, in neurology and it, it took until 2015 for a real breakthrough in interventional neuro, neurointervention to emerge, which was for the treatment of stroke. And that was basically a stent going up into the brain to pull out a blood clot. But I was always less interested in the plumbing and more interested in the, uh, how, it, how it could be that the electrical activity of the brain created, you know, not just health and, and disease, but also wellness and consciousness and that whole continuum of the brain-mind was why I went into medicine in the first place. So, but I, but I, was, but I thought the technology, um, the speed of technology growth in the interventional domain in medicine is just is, is incredible. Relative to the speed of expansion of other surgical domains, the interventional domain um, and now into robotics is, I would say, the fast movers most fast moving area in medicine. So I think I was excited about technology in neurointervention, but it was the electrophysiology of the brain that was um, so enticing. And the brain has remained this black box, you know, for a long period of time. When I started medicine, doing neurology was a, a joke to the other types of ambitious uh, young medical people because, well, in neurology, you can diagnose everything, but you can't treat anything. And now, implantable neurotechnology is opening up access into the brain in a way which just wasn't possible 10 or 15 years ago. So that was the early vision. The early vision was, can the blood vessels open up avenues to get to the brain to treat conditions that haven't previously been treated? So that was the early conceptualization of the idea. And then um, I was bouncing this idea around in my head. And then I read about brain computer interfaces and I read about Lee Hochberg and the brain gate work and um and then i thought oh well maybe that's the first application of um electro you know uh, functional neurointervention or electronics in neurointervention um and you know the early funding came from u.s defense from darpa um but we spent four or five years in melbourne australia hand you know through nick opie hand building these devices and then doing sheep experiments to prove that we could uh, record brain activity in a way that was going to be meaningful from a signal-to-noise perspective that we felt was going to be sufficient to drive a brain-computer interface for motor control. Right, so you're recording, with the centrode, you're recording electrical signals from the brain through the blood vessels, um, so I guess at some, at some remove, um, and the BrainGate consortium that you referenced before, they're one of many many groups that have been doing implanted electrodes inside the brain tissue where you can get you know, up close to the neurons. Um, so it feels like you have a very different approach. Uh, have you ever doubted it along the way? Feel like, oh my gosh, the entire community of BCI is going in this other direction. We're going in this one. Um, did it ever make you pause? I think 
Um, clinical translation is very different to uh, things that can be proven in an experimental setting. And so I think, yeah, th there's, a, there's a data reduction that occurs if you stay on the surface of the brain and particularly if you stay in a blood vessel that's on the surface of the brain. But the things that are solved technically are, um, make it uh, clinical translation more of a reality. And so the way I think about it more is not, well, how does this compete with um, systems that have proven things out in an experimental domain versus what is required to achieve clinical translation and to solve a problem in a patient setting? So they're kind of different questions. So, you know, one, one is kind of a getting obsessed with a technology race based upon, you know, technology-based metrics and the other is well what is the clinical unmet need and what are particular ways that we can solve that and, and I'll, I'll give an example of that something that we're learning now so yeah we, we've we've this first product is in a large blood vessel that only gives um a you know a, a constrained amount of access to the motor cortex um but there are reasons why we chose that. We know it's safe. We know it can live in there. We know we can get there. We know we have a procedure that can do that. We know we have um, lots of people in the country that can um, do that procedure. And we understand roughly what the safety profile is. And we know that we can uh, deliver enough data that can drive um, performance of a system. But the thing that what's been interesting is there are advantages to using population level um, LFP type uh, uh, brain recordings. And that is that they're more stable, they're quite robust, they're easy to detect, they don't need substantial training. And we have low back, we have low power requirements, which means, which means our power can um, go for a long time. And that really matters when you're talking about helping people who are paralyzed or have motor impairment because you want there to be as little troubleshooting as possible. It has to be as easy to use as possible. It has to work immediately. You can't spend weeks or months training. You can't be troubleshooting. You can't be having to press anything. It should, should, just should be working all the time. So these things have only become obvious to us most recently. So we've talked a little bit about hardware. Um, I'm also curious about the software side of things. Uh, how has that evolved over the course of your research and the, the part of your system that looks at the electrical signals and translates them into some kind of meaningful action. Yeah, it's, it's been an awesome journey. I was just um, visiting one of our patients just this week and watching him uh, go through the experience of trying out different features and, and having him explain to us, he, he, can, he can still, not all of our patients can talk, he can still talk, but he's lost control of his, of his hand so he can't use his iPhone anymore. And hearing what it feels like for him to, you know, we're trying out different levels of control, um, um, in particular, um, in this case, with iPad use. And it's interesting because, you know, we are also still feeling very early, um, but this is not a science experiment. Like we're trying to zero in and focus on features that we believe are going to work for everyone and be stable and that are um, uh, that feel good in the use of the system. 
And you can't really do that um, in the preclinical setting. You have to wait until you're in the clinical setting to figure that out. Um, and so uh, it's been interesting because you know, what do we build? Like we could build any number of different iterations of control features that are useful, but we have to focus on, on particular um, uh, control interaction models that are, that are useful for the patient and which feel good for the patient and which we think can scale over a population. So um, it's, it's been a fascinating journey. Can you tell me a little bit about the people who have participated in your clinical trials so far and um, why they need this kind of assistive device? Yeah. So we've had a range of um, levels of disability. Uh, we've had people on, on the one end who have been completely locked in. Um, uh, and, that, and that's from a range of different conditions. So locked in syndrome is where you still may have some residual uh cranial nerve function like eye movements or maybe some facial movements but in whom you can't move uh, your upper or lower limbs and often you can't move your head and then on the other end of the spectrum we've had some patients on the neurodegenerative side with ALS in particular where limb function has impaired their ability to utilize digital devices and so really you know the way I think about how we're thinking about the problem is the technology is for people who can't use their hands to control personal digital devices. And why that matters is because um, they, you know, we've, we've all become pretty dependent on digital devices for activities of daily living. And the things that matter from a, from a clinical, me, clinically meaningful perspective are things like communication, texting, emailing, messaging, um, banking, shopping, uh, healthcare access, environmental smart control, um, and then, you know, entertainment. But uh, uh, And so even for the people who can still, we've had, we've, we've got someone in our study who can still speak and who can actually still walk, but he can't use the digital device. And, you know, he's been telling us, like, you'd think, oh, well, what about, you know, what about Siri? Like, there's, what about Alexa? And you realize that if you really remove the ability to press any button, um, it becomes very challenging to engage in even the technology that's existing. Now, you know, we still, uh, we still don't know if, what the exact indication will be for our first application, but even in patients who can still talk, we're finding that there are major gaps in their capacity to engage in digital devices that I believe BCI is going to... Um, is going to solve and it's it's often very simple things i'll give you an example if you try to answer the phone when siri if you try to answer the phone with siri you can't put it on speakerphone so you can say you know yes siri answer the phone but then you can't put on the speakerphone so you know there are little things like that where you just need to hit a couple of buttons that make the difference to be able to give you that engagement I'd like to hear about what the process has been like for these volunteers. Can you tell me about what the surgery was like and then how or if you had to calibrate the device to work with their particular brains? Yeah. So the surgery is in the cath lab in a hospital. It's the same place you would go to to have a stent put in or a pacemaker. So that involves... uh, First, you, first, you know, there, there are imaging studies to make sure that the brain is 
um, appropriate and that all the blood vessels leading up into the brain are appropriate. So we have our, we have our physicians do the um, identify a suitable patient, talk to the patient, and then if, if they're interested in the study, they've joined the study, and then we do brain imaging. We, um, the, the investigators you know, make a determination that they can you know, access that part of the brain. Then the procedure, you come in, it, it takes a few hours. Uh, you lie down, you have an x-ray above you. The, uh, it looks like you're using x-ray and dye inside the blood vessels to navigate to the right spot. Um, we have a mechanism to make sure that you are in exact, the exact spot you need to be. The stentrode is, is, um, it sort of opens up like a flower in that spot and it, it's got self-expanding capacity so it, it you know, stays put. And then there is a device that, so the lead comes out of the skull um, through a natural blood, blood vessel passage and then that gets plugged into an electronics package that sits on the chest under the skin. So the whole thing's fully implanted. Um, the patients have been then um, resting for a day or so and then going home. And then we're having our, in the setting of this clinical study, we're having our field clinical engineers going out to the home two to three times per week and practicing with the system and practicing with our new software versions that we keep um, releasing. And, um, uh, and that's, how we're building, that's how we're building a product. Uh, by the time we get to the next stage of the clinical trial, that the software is getting more and more automated. Um, from a learning perspective, we, we have a philosophy that if there's a substantial learning curve for this patient population, that's not good. It's not good for the patient. It's not good for the caregiver. These patients who are suffering with severe paralysis or um, uh, motor impairment you know, may not have the uh, capacity to train for weeks to months. So it needs to work straight away. And ideally, you don't want it to be recalibrated every day. So um, we've had our system, I mean, we're, we're going to publish all this, but we've um, working and designing towards having the system working on day one as soon as it's turned on um, with level of functionality that lets the user immediately have um, functionality at some particular level. That is enough to um, let them perform some of the critical activities of daily living, that, the tasks that I just mentioned earlier. And then, you know, I think the vision is that we build a training program within the system that lets users build up their capability to increasing levels of, of um, capability, but we're much more focused on the lowest level of function that everyone can achieve and make it you know, easy to do. For it to work right out of the box... Um... Is that how, how do you make that work? Like, is one person's brain signals pretty much the same as another person's? Yeah. So PDU is our superstar um, head of um, algorithms and neuroscience. Uh, he has pulled together this incredible team of um, of neuroscientists and engineers. Uh, I think the team's about ten people now. And these guys have been working around the clock over the last 12 months to build an automated decoder. And we've been talking about this internally recently as what we think is one of the biggest breakthroughs. Um, we'll publish it at a point that's, you know, at the right time, but we're really excited about this. We, we feel like we 
have um, built a decoder that does not need to be tuned individually at all and will just work out of the box um, based upon um, what we've learned so far. And we expect that kind of design ethos to continue over time, but um, that's going to be a critical part of uh, the focus on making the system easy to use for our patients. Um, when a user wants to click on something, what do they do? What's the mental process that they go through? Yeah. So um, I've talked about the fact that we do population level activation of motor cortical um, uh, neurons. So um, to activate, so what does your motor cortex do? Your motor cortex is about 10% of your brain and you, uh, you were born with it and it was connected to all of these muscles in your body and you learned how to walk you learned how to run. My daughter just learned how to jump. She's two and a little bit. And so, you know, you spend those early years of your life training your brain on how to utilize the motor cortex, but it's connected to those certain, you know, physically tethered parts of your body. So, um, so one theory in BCI, which is what the kind of multi-unit decoding theory is, is that let's train the, let's train the neurons to do a certain task and it's often like training it to you know work within certain trajectories um i guess the way we think about it is let's let's not train it to do anything let's activate the motor cortex in the way that the brain already knows how to activate it in really robust stable ways um, at a population level so you know probably tens of thousands of neurons maybe hundreds of thousands of neurons and um, so how would you do that? Well, you would make the brain think about what it used to think about to make the body move. And so in people who have had injury or disease, um, they would have already lived a life where they have thought about pressing down their foot to press the brake pedal on the car or kicking a ball or squeezing their fist. We identify robust, strong um, motor intention, uh, you know, uh, contemplations which we know are going to activate broad um, populations of neurons robustly. And so that gives them the ability to click and I think there's also something else they can do to scroll, is that right? Yeah, so we've, we've right now, we're not yet at the point where we've got the cursor moving around the screen, um, but we have a range of, we have multi-select, scroll, click, click and hold, um, and some other things that are coming down the pipeline, which are pretty cool, but enough for the user to navigate their way around a screen like a like an Apple on, on like an iOS and make selections on the screen. And so the way we're thinking about that is so converting that into a clinical metric. David Petrino at uh, Mount Sinai has recently published this paper on what, you know what's called he's called the digital motor output DMO. And so the conversion of those population neurons into these constrained, well, not constrained, but like characterized um, outputs, we're calling that a DMO. And so the DMO, the way I think about a DMO is that is your ability to accurately select um, a desired item on a screen with a reasonable accuracy and latency. And so the way we're thinking about this is how well can you make selections um, uh, in a way that's clinically meaningful and which serves the completion of those tasks that you couldn't do before. 
are you aiming for eventually being able to control a cursor as it goes around the screen? Is that is that on the roadmap? That is on the roadmap. That's where we that's where we are headed. And I mean, I think ultimately, um, you know, we have to, we have to prove that it's possible from inside a blood vessel. Um, but I think when we do prove that, I think you know, I, I'm excited that there's a history in medicine that minimally invasive solutions that don't require open surgery tend to be the desired um, choice of patients. And so, you know, we've started this journey in a big blood vessel with certain amount of access, and we've got a lot of other exciting areas that we're going to go into that give us more and more access to more brain, and we just want to do it in a stepwise and safe fashion. But, yeah, we're, we are very excited that that's the trajectory that we're on. But we also feel that we've got a starting point, which we think is the, you know, stepwise fashion, a st- safe, you know, um, uh, uh, st- yeah, starting point. Um, I think we're just about out of time. So maybe just one last question. Um, where are you on the path towards FDA approval? How, what do you anticipate happening as next steps there? So we've just finished enrollment of our 10th patient um, in our feasibility study. So we've, well, we had four patients in our first Australian study and now six patients in an early feasibility study. Uh, that will continue to run um, formally for another, I believe, six months or so. And we'll be collecting all that data and we're having very healthy conversations with um, with the FDA, with um, Heather Dean's group in the FDA, and uh, we'll be we'll be discussing, you know, what the FDA need to see to demonstrate both safety and efficacy um, towards a marketing approval. With what we hope will be the first um, first commercial implantable BCI system, but we've still got, we've still got a way to go. Um, and there's a very healthy conversation happening right now about how to think about those outcomes that are meaningful for patients. Um, uh, so, you know, I would say over the next um, over the next few years, we're just moving our way through the stages of clinical studies, and um, um, hopefully, we'll be uh, um, opening up more and more sites across the country, and maybe globally to enrol more people, and hopefully. Uh, make a difference in the lives of this of this condition which um, is really doesn't have any treatment right now well tom thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate your time thank you so much eliza that was tom oxley speaking to me about his company synchron and its innovative brain computer interface if you want to learn more we ran an article about synchron in ieee spectrum's january issue and we've linked to it in the show notes I'm Eliza Strickland, and I hope you'll join us next time on Fixing the Future.